Now hear a reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 50. When Jacob finished giving these instructions to his sons, he pulled his feet up onto the bed, breathed his last breath, and went to his people. Then Joseph hugged his father's face. He wept over him and kissed him. Joseph instructed the physicians in his service to embalm his father, so the physicians embalmed Israel. They took 40 days, for that is the full time needed for embalming. The Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's royal court, If I have found favor in your sight, please say to Pharaoh, My father made me swear an oath. He said, I am about to die. Bury me in my tomb that I dug for myself there in the land of Canaan. Now let me go and bury my father, then I will return. So Pharaoh said, Go and bury your father, just as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials went with him, the senior courtiers of his household, all the senior officials of the land of Egypt, all Joseph's household, his brothers, and his father's household. But they left their little children and their flocks and herds in the land of Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him, so it was a very large entourage. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad on the other side of the Jordan, they mourned there with very great and bitter sorrow. There Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived in the land saw them mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a very sad occasion for the Egyptians. That is why its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. So the sons of Jacob did for him just as he had instructed them. His sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah near Mamre. This is the field Abraham purchased as a burial plot from Ephron the Hittite. After he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, along with his brothers and all who had accompanied him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge and wants to repay us in full for all the harm we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father gave these instructions before he died. Tell Joseph this, Please forgive the sin of your brothers and the wrong they did when they treated you so badly. Now please forgive the sin of the servants of the God of your father. When this message was reported to him, Joseph wept. Then his brothers also came and threw themselves down before him. They said, Here we are. We are your slaves. But Joseph answered them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant to harm me, but God intended it for a good purpose, so he could preserve the lives of many people. As you can see this day. So now, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your little children. Then he consoled them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph lived in Egypt along with his father's family. Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the descendants of Ephraim to the third generation. He also saw the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh. They were given special inheritance rights by Joseph. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to you and lead you up from this land to the land he swore on oath to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He said, God will surely come to you. Then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110. After they embalmed him, his body was placed in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, in this moment of silence, please speak to us about your word. Lord, as we come to the end of Genesis, uh, we stand together with your people throughout the millennia, grateful for this testimony of your work, for this glimpse of your faithfulness and your power, this preview of the calling on your people. And we ask, Lord, that uh, 
you open us up so that we could hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Lord, we also ask that you have your way in the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, friends, we are finishing the book of Genesis today, and and I don't know, it may just feel like a normal Sunday to you, but, you know, Genesis has become my buddy over the last year, so... Uh, so thanks for sticking with us as we've, as we've gone through this. And um, it has, uh, my understanding of this book has been profoundly altered uh, thanks to, thanks to the, this study that we've done together. And so uh, I hope that's the case for you as well. So as we're here at the very end, uh, I want to ask a question that is, it's a really important question for you to ask yourself regularly. It seems like a generic question, but the question is, what do you want? Like, what do you really want? I, I think we can go through a lot of our lives without really understanding the desires that, that are driving us, the things that our hearts are longing for. And so often we look to things that don't actually meet our deepest desires, hoping they will satisfy us. Throughout my life, too many times in my life, I have pinned weighty desires to objects, big or small. I, I can still remember, you know, after the, the iPhone first came out and, you know, seeing kind of what this thing could do and, and deciding, all right, I want one of those. I was convinced, you guys, I was convinced that my organization problems, my memory problems, you know, my, my calendar problems, all of those would be solved. Like, it was, gonna, it was the answer to my life, I was sure. And uh, any of you who sat waiting for me in a meeting in the months and years afterwards know that it didn't work. Uh, I've pinned outlandish hopes to everything from a home to a car to a pair of shoes. Uh, when we've had staff transitions at church after mourning the departure of the previous employee, I, uh, I have found myself investing crushing hope in the new employee uh, before ever even finding them. Imagining that this, uh, this person would be the catalyst for massive church growth, you know, like, oh, you know, just the right person in this particular job. What do these desires tell me about what I want? This is the question that I think you guys should ask, too. When you get to what you want, what do your desires tell you about what you want? So often my heart thirsts for ease for comfort, for security, for fame. Whether you are uh, currently single or not, I assume most of you understand that, that hope of emotional, relational, uh, sexual fulfillment that we can attach to a future spouse. It's something that drives us. Mapping your honest hopes is a really important piece of self-awareness. It actually tells you a bit about your design when you get to the heart of it. You know, C.S. Lewis famously 
uh, used the common human hope of paradise as evidence that we were made for it. We were made for heaven. In relationship counseling, one of the important steps is to clarify expectations. If you are having trouble with your spouse, a really important thing to do is to say, what, what was it that you were hoping for in this situation? Like, what, what were you looking for? You know, it occurred to me in a, in a strange way, um, as I was thinking about Genesis, you know, what happens in Genesis is the serpent at the beginning of Genesis redirects Eve's hopes. She, he, he convinces her to hope for something other than what she has. And it occurred to me as I was writing this that, that a preacher does the same work in reverse. You know, that, that's the goal of any good sermon. We want to entice our listeners away from the apple to realign our hopes around holy dependence, not worldly independence. So Genesis from beginning to end could be understood as an exploration of desire, of hope. The drama begins in earnest in that moment with the serpent when people start to hope for something that they weren't made for. This destructive desire, which Augustine called disordered loves, disordered loves, it wreaks havoc. It leads to Abel's death, the flood, the Tower of Babel, the abuse of Hagar, the birth of Ishmael, the deceit of Esau, the greed of Laban, the competition between Leah and, Ra Ra Leah and Rachel, and of course, the betrayal of Joseph. Underneath each of these scenes is a destructive hope. After each one comes the patient presence of a personal God who comes looking for us. Where, where are you? working to restore life in the garden. You know, one of the best known proverbs in the Bible is about hope. Hope deferred makes the heart what? Sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. That's from the Bible, not Hallmark. All right. It seems to me uh, it's a double whammy when my hope is attached to something that won't actually satisfy it. It's like a false peak. You get to the top of it and realize this isn't where I was trying to go at all. We can be crushed when we think we've arrived. So Genesis has been a realignment of diverted hopes. Our deepest hope needs are addressed in this passage at the end of Genesis. These scenes with the death of Jacob and the death of Joseph address our deepest hope needs. And I'll tell you how. We're given a deposit of hope in this passage. We're given a picture of the rebirth of hope, the climax of hope, and the end of hope. So to track through these things, we're actually going to take the passage in reverse. So if you're someone who keeps your Bible open and tries to track with what I'm talking about, we're going to start at the end of the chapter and go backwards. Okay, so... Um, and it's really great to have a Bible in your hands while a preacher is preaching. I would recommend that. <laughs> That's a good, good thing to do. So, looking at the end of the passage, uh, chapter 50, verses 22 to 26, we're going to look at the deposit of hope, hope's deposit. So, 
suffering, it turns out, challenges our hope. Especially when suffering lasts for a long time, when there's no end in sight, when, we, when we're not sure if the suffering we're experience, experiencing will ever end, our hope is threatened. You know, we've been saying throughout Genesis that we need to read it alongside the Israelites in the wilderness. These are the, the Exodus Israelites. They're, they're wandering through the desert. They're, they're now hungry. They're now attacked. They're, they're now thirsty. Why has that story been so compelling to so many people throughout the ages? Well, I think because no matter whether you live in the Sahara or a rainforest, human beings can associate with the dry spell right? That, that time when things are just flat. This dry spell has been given various names by spiritual writers. It's called the wall, the dark night of the soul. But here's the thing about Americans. We are more keen to avoid that experience than perhaps any people group in history. <laughs> here's some stats uh, that perhaps prove that. We want to distract ourselves from it. Americans spend an average of three to four hours a day watching television and over two hours per day on social media. So that's five to six hours a day. Um, there's a variety of reasons for this, but 15% of American adults use prescription antidepressants. That's an incredibly large number. The drugs, the painkillers, oxycodone and hydrocodone, we use 99% of the world's usage of those drugs. Did you know that? And, and those, are, those are supposed to be painkillers. They, they become very addictive and people use them. In fact, Americans have figured out that they kind of numb our emotional pain as much as our physical pain. By almost any measure, we have more luxury and opportunity than any people in history, and yet we're among the least content people in history, aren't we? We're dissatisfied. Our solution to the experience of the desert, the ongoing suffering, is to simply pretend it's not happening to us. We don't hope. Hope is long gone. Why do we do that? Well, normal suffering stands in the way of our hope. How, how, how do we keep hope when we're hungry, when we're thirsty, when we're under attack, when you hate your job, when you're having trouble living with the people in your household, when your relationships are perpetually conflicted, when you have chronic pain? Well, here's what a lot of Americans do. We're the most consumeristic people perhaps in history, the market gives us something to hope for. Maybe that pair of shoes or that car or that rare vinyl recording will make me feel happy. And so we hope for those things. In so many ways, we're like the Israelites in the wilderness. But there's one significant difference. They're in the actual wilderness. <laughs> and they can remember Egypt's the last words of the book of Genesis repeat a promise that has come true for them. Their wilderness is actually evidence. It's a deposit of their hope. 
Joseph says at the end of Genesis, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to you and lead you up from this land to the land he swore on oath to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His final words are a prophetic promise. God will do this. And the first people listening to it are out of Egypt. Like they can remember being in Egypt. They have a deposit on their hope. The fact that they're in the wilderness is evidence that they have reason to hope. He did it. Hope deferred may make the heart sick, but that's only the first half of that proverb. A longing fulfilled is the tree of life. Interesting. The proverb about hope points us back to the Garden of Eden, the tree of life. Jacob's prophetic promise, which is now fulfilled in the Exodus, is a deposit guaranteeing the fulfillment of the hopes that we were designed to hope. But suffering isn't all that stands in the way of our hope. We have to go to the next section. Verses 15 to 21 tells a famous story where Joseph's brothers, terrified, come to him and make up. I'm sure they're making it up. We don't really get the info one way or the other, but they go to they they write a note to him basically and say, "Dad said you have to forgive us." Like, please, guys, maybe maybe thirty seven or forty years have passed since they sold Joseph into slavery. Forty years, and they're still terrified. And you know what? With good reason. The there are. The ruthless rulers of the world throughout history have waited for their chance to exact revenge. Why not Joseph? He's in the, he has all the power. With the snap of his fingers, he could have them all executed or tortured or imprisoned or whatever. You see, if suffering challenges our hope, guilt is poison to it. They can't, they can't relax in the land of Goshen which is a lovely part of Egypt. They can't, they can't enjoy what they have. They're afraid for their lives. When we experience guilt, our hope turns into fear because guilt tells us what I deserve is the opposite of my hope. Guilt mocks our hope. It mocks it. It's a stunning story. They're still racked by guilt for betraying Joseph. And they deserve it. They deserve it. I, I, I was thinking of, you know, uh, this is not a movie recommendation, but I was thinking of the movie The Godfather. And at the end of The Godfather, you know, Don Corleone has finally died and his son Michael has become the new Godfather. And what's his first act? He assassinates the heads of the five families. He, he kills off the, his father's friends who betrayed him. He even has his own brother killed. Spoiler alert. <laughs> the movie's been out for a while. so <clears throat> To mitigate what they fear, the brothers attempt to negotiate for a lesser punishment. They can't, they can't hope for freedom. They say, like, dad says to forgive us, so we'll, just, we'll be your slaves. We'll be your servants. It's just like the prodigal son returning to his dad. Just let me be a servant in your household. They cannot hope while their guilt remains. When we still believe justice is coming for us, temporary pleasures are tainted. 
And so they come to Joseph desperate, just like we live a lot of our lives. And Joseph pardons their sins. He, he, he sees their pardon in his own sacrifice. What you meant for evil, God used for good. It's the stunning, unbelievable hope of the Bible in a sentence. God is so good that he will ultimately use even human evil to bring about his good purposes. I mean, that is really hard to accept when you consider the massive suffering in our world today, much less through history. But it's the promise of Scripture. It's the offer of hope given to us. This is not merely a sovereign God authoring both good and evil for his entertainment. No, this is a good God who redeems evil for our good. Joseph refuses to stand in God's place. Instead, he acts as a priest. He offers them forgiveness. Likewise, in the wilderness, God calls Aaron and the tribe of Levi to act as priests. So much of the law that they're getting in the wilderness is this whole system of the priesthood and sacrifices. That's just a repetition of what Joseph does for his brothers right here. They demonstrate in manifold ways the mercy of God through the sacrificial system. And here's the deal. Joseph's life and a sacrifice in, in, in the Exodus were gory. They're messy. It's like it, hard to watch. I wouldn't want to watch a sacrifice happening. But what else could convince us that God acknowledges the severity of our guilt? Friends, if you go to someone asking for forgiveness and they say, forget about it, it's no big deal. You don't feel forgiven. You still carry it with you. If you have wronged them, you need that person to say, yes, that hurt me. You wronged me and I forgive you. You owe me nothing. That's what Joseph does for his brothers. We also are given a glimpse of hope's climax, the peak of our hopes on earth. It comes at the beginning of our passage. Verses 1 to 14 tell the story of Jacob's death and burial. Suffering challenges our hope. Guilt poisons our hope. Powerlessness, it just numbs hope. It covers over it. The Israelites in the wilderness, they could easily feel powerless. Uh, constantly, they, they don't have a standing army. They don't have a land to call their own. They are wandering into other people's lands. They suffer from hunger and thirst and vulnerability constantly. How can they hope in that place? Well, they did see a massive display of power when they left Egypt, right? They saw God's power. I mean, that's, that should live in their memories for the rest of their lives. But go two days without food and see how powerful you feel. Go, go one full day without water and see how powerful you feel. 
How will they defend themselves against tribal warlords into whose territory they're marching? Well, in the middle of Genesis, in a very strange scene, Abraham buys a field back in chapter 23. He buys this one field and he wants it to be the burial place for his wife, Sarah. And so, you know, it's, you get like a whole chapter of him negotiating for this field. And it doesn't really like follow with the story before that. It seems like this weird one-off. We didn't even spend time preaching on it. And we've got into a lot of detail in Genesis in a year. And yet, that field becomes evidence of their hope. The burial procession of Jacob is a journey back to that field. We need to remember, to the Egyptians, Hebrews are disgusting. It tells us that twice in the last few chapters. Hebrews are disgusting. And yet when Jacob dies, the most powerful nation on the planet goes into total mourning total mourning. They mourn for 40 days. And then, and then when Joseph goes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh sends all of his officials into Canaan with Joseph. And then they mourn for seven more days there. What's happened? The, the most powerful nation on earth is treating Jacob, not even Joseph, Jacob, his just Hebrew dad who just showed up, treating him like a king. That's what they're doing. He's being given a royal funeral procession, a royal burial. The people see in the man who represents all of them, what are they called? The people of Israel. And they're watching Israel himself be escorted by the Egyptian officials into the promised land. They are seeing themselves be crowned king. The climax of their hope is wrapped up in the promise of a king being laid to rest in the promised land. This climactic hope will echo through the prophets for all of Israel's history. I mean, you can find it in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. They all envision a day when the mighty nations of the earth will bow down before Israel's king. That's exactly what they do with Jacob, Israel himself. It's a promise of power that the Israelites could never achieve on their own. How different their recent departure from Egypt. They're fleeing from Egypt's officials. So they need this evidence. Hope is realigned here. Jacob's body is returned to a garden in Canaan. Honored as if he's the king of the world. Isn't that wild? He, he's... He's returned back to the promised land, the only bit that they own. And he's honored as if he's the king of the world. The dominion that was lost by Adam and Eve at the beginning of the book is restored symbolically to Jacob at the end. And Jacob doesn't deserve it. Doesn't deserve it. This, I would argue, is the deepest object of our hope. A good king to rule over his good creation, to empower us to be who we were made to be. One who can capture our disordered loves and chaotic hopes and show what they're meant for. So, 
after hope's climax, we wonder, where is it all going? Well, we also get in this passage, hope's end. You see, at the beginning and the end of Genesis chapter 50, you have a burial procession. You have the Israelites carrying bones into the promised land. They did it with Jacob at the beginning, and then they do it with Joseph at the end. Those objects prove that their deaths are a promise of life to come. Why are the Israelites carrying bones with them into the promised land? At this point, very, very old bones. Well, because a future fulfillment of their hope is coming. Joseph gave a prophecy, and that was the deposit of hope. He was a prophet. Joseph pardoned their sin as a priest. Jacob was brought into the land as a king. And now they're carrying Joseph's bones into that same promised land. We, we've discussed how suffering and guilt and powerlessness stand in the way of our hope, but what's behind all of those things? I think it's just death. Death stands behind all of those things. The shadow of death is the ultimate threat to our hope. And in our story, we, we hear all of these tales of Joseph and the Egyptian officials bringing Jacob's bones, and then we see the Israelites bringing his bones back. And, and we need to imagine ourselves as the Israelites in the wilderness one last time. These stories may fan the flame of our hope, hearing them. Joseph's prophecy has come true, yeah. We hear the story of Joseph pardoning his brothers. We see the priests, okay. We hear about Jacob being crowned king. The seeds of the kingdom are maybe germinating in their hearts as they imagine the promised land. The stories help, but the bones, they're a gift. The, the Israelites, as they journeyed, were carrying a, a sacred box. That box is called the Ark of the Covenant. Inside of that box is, uh, you know, the Ten Commandments, the words that God gave to, to guide and shape his people. But we often forget, I often forget, that they're actually carrying two boxes, same word, two arks. One has tablets of stone in it, the other has dry bones in it, Joseph's bones. And they treat them both as sacred. There's a rabbi named Lewis Ginsburg, and he explains this. It, it, this is just stunning to me. He says, all this time in the desert, Israel carried two shrines with them. In, the one, in one, the coffin containing the bones of the dead man, Joseph, the other ark containing the covenant of the living God. The wayfarers who saw the receptacles wondered, and they would ask, how doth the ark of the dead come next to the ark of the ever-living? The answer was, the dead man enshrined in the one fulfilled the commandments enshrined in the other. Okay, so he's saying, yeah, Joseph is, is an example of one who was faithful to the commands. But I don't think Rabbi Ginsburg goes far enough. 
These bones are on their way to a specific destination. They're going to a cave in a field called Machpelah. That's where they're going. That same cave where Jacob's bones were buried at the beginning of passage, it's the only land the Israelites own in the promised land. Abraham bought it in chapter 23. He buried Sarah there. I've already said that. But when Abraham bought it, when he purchased the cave, chapter 23 gives us a a weird detail. It says, the the field was surrounded by trees. Uh, Okay, it's like a cave. Of course, it's surrounded by trees. But we have to remember that Genesis never talks about trees on accident. So there's trees all around it. And get this, the word Machpelah means the naked couple. Like the naked pair of people. A naked pair of people in a field surrounded by trees. What is this? It's Eden, you guys. They're being restored back to the Garden of Eden. They're bringing the bones back. Let me connect the dots. The Israelites are carrying the bones of Joseph to be buried with Jacob and Abraham and Sarah in a cave in the promised land, which is in a field full of trees. Like This is Adam and Eve in the garden, you guys. Unashamed. But why? Okay, who cares? Why bury bones there? If any of you have been to Israel... Uh, you, you go, you know, right outside of the old walls of Jerusalem, there's a hillside. And on that hillside, there's all these weird sort of boxes. It looks like giant steps. Well, what are those? Those are, those are graves. Those are graves. And those are the, the richest Israelites buried there. The people could, who could afford to be buried where the action is going to happen later. They're convinced that at the temple site and rippling outward will be the great resurrection. And so that is prime real estate. They have a front row seat for the great show at the end of time. And here at the, in the very beginning is a promise of resurrection. In the very beginning, the Israelites are bringing Joseph and Jacob's bones back. Why? Because they believe that death will be defeated. That's the message to us. Suffering, guilt, powerlessness, and ultimately death, they threaten our hope. But Genesis 50 offers us a prophet who gives purpose to the suffering, a priest who burdens our guilt, a king who empowers us, and the expectation of resurrection. Hmm. Who could possibly fulfill all of these desires? Who could be a prophet, priest, and king who defeated death? Perhaps the one who prophesied his own death and resurrection? The one called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? The one who announces the kingdom in word and deed? He too was buried in a cave in a garden. But when his followers came to treat his body, it was empty. The Israelites carried a box of bones to remember the promise of resurrection. We come to a little table with bread and wine on it. But it's the same message, you guys. Those bones were a sacrament. They were a promise of something greater. Death would be undone. The whole problem that started the book of Genesis would be reversed eventually. It would be undone. 
Paul says every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. These are the bones in the box. But they don't speak of a dead man. They speak of a living one. You see, on the very night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, take this, all of you, and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many. For what? The forgiveness of sins. There he is, Joseph, taking the betrayal and saying all of that was meant for good. God used it to wipe out our guilt. And so, let's proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's remember that the cave is empty. Death has been defeated. And our hope has a place to live. Pray with me. Father, my loves are, are still constantly disordered. My hopes and desires, they, they are chaotic. And I attach them to little things. And so I, I bring that weakness before you at this table. Lord, let me look upon this bread and this cup and see my heart's true desire. You, King Jesus, reigning over all. Lord, we put our trust in you and we come empty-handed. In Jesus' name, amen. So as